Let's hear Mr. it for Fogel. Pastor Mike. That's the, that's Speaking is easy. Doing announcements is hard. I just got to tell you that. Well, good morning. Now, for those of you who were here last week, I have a question for you. I think to which you hopefully might know the answer. Do you know what's coming? I'm going to say, how are you? And you say, there you go. For those of you who missed last weekend, we had this little exchange. My friend of mine would always say, I'm alive and grateful. And we sort of unpacked that last week. We are coming. We have now come to the end of Paul's letter to this Turkish church in Ephesus in Turkey. 2,000-year-old letter relevant for today because it talks about how we are alive in Jesus and what that means and how it works for everyday living. And uh, just sort of to wrap this, my question is, what did Paul want us to know in this letter to the Ephesians? Well, he wants us to know, one, what Jesus has done for us, and two, that we should never lose the wonder. This, This is how he puts it, because he understands that life is challenging. I mean, we... We sang about it this morning through the scars and struggles of life. Some of you who have been around the sun as many times as I have, you know that life is what happened when you expected something else. And so, you know, we we understand this. This is Paul's exhortation in Ephesians, the third chapter, that that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. That's the whole deal about Ephesians. This is who Jesus is. This is who the church is. And we want you to be strengthened for the walk. And uh, the word that's used, the word for power, is the root word for dynamite. So it's this explosive, powerful thing in us. But when you live life, as many of you know, it's not without cost. And it's not without a fight. It isn't just, you don't just amble through life. You just don't go rambling for a while. You just don't. There are places in life that just hit us between the eyes. So last week was grateful living, and it was about the walk. This week we're going to talk about battlefield living, and it's about the war. Here's the picture. Paul is writing from prison. It's not a prison like Larimer County Jail. It's probably a rented house, and it's sort of like house arrest. But he's in chains, probably not in arm chains. It would be a little hard to write on a parchment if you got chains clanking all the time. But maybe a, a leg chain that's bolted to the floor. And there are Roman guards. It's interesting because he's a political hostage. The Jewish power brokers want to get rid of him. The Roman power brokers don't know what to do with him. But meantime, he's a prisoner of the Romans. And it's interesting because he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of the Jews. He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of the Romans. What he says is, I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Really interesting because it looks like he's a prisoner of the Romans. But if I'm already a prisoner of someone else, this is a moot point. This, this uh, current affliction, as he would call it, is just sort of a passing deal. This too shall pass. So at the letter's end here... He comes to a military motif. He's got guards in there. So he's, he's looking at military all day long. And the thrust of our talk this morning would be how to be victorious in the battle. How to end up winning. Paul's first word, and this is the first point on your bulletin. Paul's first words are a call to valor. This is a call to valor. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. This is the way you win. Be strong in the Lord and in his 
mighty power. Now, I, I confess I'm not a military guy. If I have one regret in my life, it's that I wish I would have worn the cloth of the nation for at least a couple of years. You know, I used to go to the Pentagon in D.C. quite often, and some military person, it could be a sergeant, it could be a general, would say, so Dick, have you served? And I would sheepishly have to say the closest I came to serving, wearing the cloth of the nation, was one semester of Air Force ROTC at Cal Berkeley. And they just rolled their eyes and say, well, yeah, that's, that's not even like a tea party. That's not even military. That's, you know, that's not. A... But it's interesting because my first, the first thing I remember as a three-year-old was a military experience. I was three months past three. It was June of 1945. My family, my parents, my older sister and I were in New York City. We were on our way in June of 45 after the, the close of the war in Europe. We were on our way to India. My parents were missionary educators. But on June 10th, 1945, New York City went crazy. They had the biggest parade, biggest ticker tape parade ever in the history of New York City. The parade wound for 37 miles through all the boroughs of New York. Four million people came out to see the person who was in the parade. He was the symbol of victory. His name was David, Dwight David Eisenhower. He was the supreme allied commander in Europe. They had just signed the unconditional surrender, surrender of Nazi Germany on May the 7th. And he was coming home and New York City was coming out to see him. And we were there. And this is what it looked like. This arrival by air begins a record-breaking ovation. New York and General Eisenhower. With New York's Mayor LaGuardia, the commander of victory in Europe proceeds to the climax of his welcome home. New York is really set for a triumph. That must be the key to Brooklyn. Central Park, tens of thousands of school children, miles of them along the line of the drive through the park. Down Fifth Avenue, through immense cheering crowds. Lady, control your enthusiasm. He personifies victory in the bitter war against the brutal Nazi enemy. rolled down Fifth Avenue and New York's finest on horseback came by, followed by marching bands. And there we were in the crowd as Eisenhower, standing up in the back of the car, came by, waving at the crowd, ticker tape coming out of the windows, people screaming and shouting. And there he goes. And there in the crowd, my mom and my dad and a little guy, three years old, down there in the corner, isn't he cute? I was cute once. There you go. I just thought, I, I just wanted to prove I was there. That's it, okay? So we're good. After, the, after last night's service, a former police officer came up to me and said, Foth, I'm a cop. And I got to tell you, I'm a little suspicious of the picture. That doesn't look like anything like you at all. I don't know. That, uh, The day before, the evening before D-Day, which was a year before this event. This is June 10th, 45. June 6th, 1944 was D-Day in Normandy. The night before that, this is what Eisenhower said to his men. This was the call to valor. 
You are about to embark on the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. I have full confidence in your courage and devotion to duty and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Sometimes we need battle cries in our lives. Sometimes we need someone to say not just you can do this. We need someone to say you must do this. You have to do this. If we don't do this, it's catastrophic. We need some cries in our lives that demand something. It's an Old Testament word, ruach, which means spirit. It's the word for spirit. It's also the word for shout. It's also the word for a battle cry. So in Psalm 47, 1, here's this battle cry. Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout, ruach, unto God with the voice of triumph. Or Isaiah 42, 13. The Lord will march out like a champion. Like a warrior, he will stir up his zeal with a shout, ruach. He will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. How do we be strong in the Lord? That's the call to valor from Paul. Be strong in the Lord in his power. He goes on to tell us how. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. And this is chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse 10 through 24. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There's the D word. Be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Some years ago, a fellow gave me a book written by a Lakota Sioux gentleman named Joseph Marshall, who had written a book on Chief Crazy Horse called The Four Powers. And, uh, excuse me, The Power of Four. And it was the four lessons for battle. And these were the four lessons. Know yourself. Know your friends. Know your enemies. Lead the way. Know yourself. Know your friends, know your enemies, lead the way. Point two in your bulletin, to be strategic in battle, you must know your enemy. You must know your enemy. Paul's in chains. He's looking at a Roman guard, and this is what he says in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. He's saying flesh and blood is not the problem. It's what's behind them that's the problem. Uh, N.T. Wright is a a theologian. He's the Bishop of Durham, well-written, well-spoken fellow who has thought a lot about these things. And he says in the Gospels, Jesus' confrontation was always with the powers of evil. It, it may have been framed like the Jewish power brokers or the religious leaders, or, but it was always this idea that there was evil behind it. The message of the Gospels is the defeat of the powers and principalities of evil that Paul considers as sort of the custodians of this space, of this present time. And their purpose is to deflect worship from us to the true God. They want to get us distracted According to Paul, they want to get us distracted from that worship. The Hebrew theology had this idea that there were three heavens. First heaven, second heaven. The third heaven was where the presence of God was. But in those lower heavens, that's where the lesser powers dwelt. The ones that were against God. And that's the context of this when he says that. It's it's interesting because we, we understand power behind what is obvious. 
somebody closes a plant, for example. There's a, there's a factory that closes, and somebody says, how did that happen? And somebody else will say, well, the powers that be, those suits up there somewhere, or those people behind the scenes, or the macroeconomics of whatever it is. So we understand that there are layers of authority. But, but the question is, who's the enemy here? Who's the enemy? Some, sometimes we get upset at symptoms, But the real question is, who's the enemy? And Scripture has all kinds of words for Satan or the devil. or I'll just read you a few and counterpose them to the names of Jesus. Listen to this. Here's Abaddon or Apollyon. Abaddon is is the Hebrew word. Apollyon is the Greek word. And it means destroyer. Jesus is just the opposite of that. He's the creator. You have the accuser. It says that the enemy is the accuser of us. The opposite of that is the Holy Spirit who's the advocate for us. One's the prosecutor, he's the defense counsel. And he wins, just like the creator wins over the destroyer. You have the adversary, but Jesus is our leader. You have Satan who's the angel of light, a fallen angel, but Jesus is the light. He's more. You have the deceiver, and then you have Jesus who's the honest one. You have the dragon, and then you have the lion of Judah, who triumphs. Those of you who like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or any of C.S. Lewis's stuff, Aslan is the Christ figure. He's the lion in those stories. You have the enemy, and then you have Jesus, who's our friend. You have the evil one, and you have Jesus, who's the good one. You have the father of lies, and you have Jesus, who is truth, and truth wins. You have the God of this age, and you have the Lord of the eternal. When all is said and done, he still is. You have the ruler of this world, and then you have the king of the universe. Way more. The challenge with talking about evil or Satan or the devil or the powers is that some folks underbelieve. They say, well, you know, that's just hokum. That's superstition. That's for like old people in in illiterate nations. You know, that's. And then some people overbelieve. They they believe that there's a devil behind everything. Everything, you know, we're, we're back to Flip Wilson and Geraldine back in the day. Those of you who are old enough, the devil made me do it. You know, they're sort of there. But the point is this. Evil is real. Ask any law enforcement officer. Ask any person who served. Ask any counselor. Ask any medical person. Ask any social worker. Ask yourself. Scripture has this interesting statement saying the heart is deceitful. And I'm saying, hey, 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 I'm a good guy. What do you mean my heart's deceitful? Well, left to my own devices without, without truth in my life, I tend to wander off the reservation. I tend to say, well, why don't we cut corners here? Or, you know, nobody will know. That's how we tend to be. We're, we're, we're sort of back to the Garden of, of Eden, if you will. Helmut Thielicke was a German Lutheran theologian. During the Second World War, he was part of a group that included a fellow named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was older. He was known. He was killed by the Gestapo. Thielicke survived. The Gestapo were on their way to get him in Stuttgart, and he, he survived. But he told, I was with him one day, and he told the story about children in refugee camps, because there were thousands of refugee German children after the war, and they were in camps. And they came to do a puppet show. And in the puppet show... Part of the story had to do that there was a figure that was supposed to be the devil and he showed up and he had the red suit and the horns and the pitchfork and all the kids went because they were saying, that's not the devil. The devil's not ugly like that. 
The devil's beautiful. He's an angel of light. He comes inch by inch. He doesn't usually do that. He doesn't need to get us to do this. All he needs to do is get us to do that. That much off. If you get that much off, give us five years and we're that much off. That's just how it works. And you, you hark back to the Garden of Eden and the story of Adam and Eve. And, and they have the whole garden except one tree. And God says, don't eat from that tree. And so the enemy, in the, in the guise of a serpent, and serpents, I guess it was a beautiful thing back then. And it came and said, well, God didn't really mean that. Essentially, this is a fourth paraphrase. And she said, well, he said we shouldn't eat from the tree and we shouldn't even touch it. And when she said that, she was on his territory because he's a liar. That's his first, that's his first language. Satan's first language, his native tongue, is lying. Because God didn't say don't touch it. Presumably they had to cultivate it. He said don't eat from it. And he had her. You see, I have a friend who says this. People say, you know, the enemy comes along and says, just do what you want. It won't make a difference. Just live like it. It won't make a difference. And he says, we think that makes us free. His point is, that doesn't make us free. When what you do doesn't make a difference, if what you do doesn't have a consequence, that doesn't make us free. That makes us meaningless. Here is the God who comes along and fights against him. See the, see the good news. Let me jump to the end real quick. We win, okay? That's the end of this story, so don't get nervous. I'm just telling you. But he's the accuser. Probably his big, biggest deal is he accuses us. If, if I'm a bit insecure, he comes along and says, you're not only insecure, you're pathetic. You can't do anything. You know, you, you've, you've been beaten down or you've got situations or by personality, you're this way. Just, you're, you're done. You're out. And for the person who thinks they have gifts and do have gifts and they're talented, he comes along and says, oh, you're really good. You, you are to, you're almost godlike. Why don't you start believing that? And either way, he takes us out of the game. He's the accuser of the brethren of the people. I had this thought some years ago. I don't know how heaven's going to work. But I had this thought that if Satan himself showed up in heaven or around us, that I'd be standing before God, Lord willing, I'd be there and, and I'll say, here I am. And he'd say, Poth, how are you? I'd say, I'm good. I'm better now that I'm here. I'm good. And Satan's over here in the corner someplace and he says, excuse me, excuse me, I have this list of all of Poth's sins, you see? And he starts unrolling it. It goes all the way down the center aisle. And I hear God the Father saying, you know, I've got the original on that. And he unrolls his. And there's nothing on it except a blood-stamped print that says, Paid in full, signed, Jesus the Christ. You can clap for that if you want. We need, we need to be aware. We don't need to be afraid. We need to be aware. When Jesus went to the cross... He won, Satan lost, we won, Satan's a liar and a loser, but he still does damage. He still has some capacity to influence. Point three, to be effective in the fight, we must be rightly equipped. To be effective in the fight, we must be rightly equipped. Verse 13 says it this way, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Again, he's looking at a Roman soldier as he writes this. Can you imagine being one of those guys, one of those Roman soldiers? <laughs> They're going out after their shift and they go to the captain of the guard and say, Cap, please, 
don't make me go back in there. That guy's loony bins. I mean, he's, he's talking. He sings in the middle of the night. He's always talking to us about a God we can't see. He seems to be a nice enough guy, but he's tough. He said, please don't make... Anyway, who wants to be chained to the Apostle Paul? But the point is this. He's looking at a guy that's dressed in armor. And he says it this way. Stand therefore, verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. He apparently is listing these things in order of the way a Roman soldier would put on his armor, his clothing. And he puts the breastplate over the top takes the buckler or the belt and puts it around. He says, the belt holds it all together. That's truth. This is right standing. He just assigns value to them as he writes. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil ones. So you've got these sandals with things on the bottom so you can have a firm standing. And you've got this shield. It's a big shield, six feet in some instances, maybe larger. And it used to be in battle that they would put pitch on the end of arrows and fire them after they set them on fire. So it's literally saying you can withstand all the fiery uh, arrows of the enemy. You can do that. So this is trust that does that. The feet are the gospel of peace. And take the helmet of salvation, the place you know you came in the door, and the sword of the spirit. They have a short sword that goes in their belt. That is the word of God. Of course, it wouldn't have been the New Testament, would it? That wasn't written yet. So this had to be the Torah and the, all the true things about God that we know about him. So you've got, these are, the, these are the things. You've got the shoes that are peace. You've got the shield that's faith. You've got the helmet salvation. You've got the sword that's the word of God. You've got the belt that's truth. And you've got the breastplate that's right standing. These are the things that Jesus brings us. Truth, right standing, peace, faith, salvation, sword of the spirit. Those are the weapons, both defensive and offensive. But you say, how do you, what do you do? You get up in the morning and say, okay, God, I'm putting on the salvation this morning. I'm going to put on the... I don't think so. There's this great phrase in Romans 13, Paul again saying, put on Christ, make no provision for the flesh. Or Galatians 3.27, put on Christ like putting on new clothes. When you step into Jesus, when you say, I want to be his, I'm going to give my life to him. When you do that, you automatically get the helmet and the breastplate. And the belt, and the shoes, and the shield, and the sword. That's what it means. And he, he elaborates it. He said it a different way earlier. He says, be soaked in the spirit with a song in your heart, and with a grateful heart and submissive spirit. This week, he's saying, or in, in this part of the letter, he's saying the same thing in a different way. Point four, prayer is the fuel for the fight. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Prayer puts us on the offense. This is not a defensive battle. Prayer puts you on the offense. Um, I, have a, I have a friend named Mark Batterson who's an author. Some of you have read his books. But in there he said, God loves it when we fight for him, but loves it more when we let him fight for us. Prayer does that. Psalm 35, 23, contend for me, my God and my Lord. You say, well, how do you pray? Like, I'm not a big prayer. Like, I don't get down on my knees or whatever. Let's, you know. Well, you can pray a lot of ways. You can pray silently or you can pray out loud or you can pray in your first language. Or you can pray in song. Whenever I hear Ruth, my wife, playing the piano, I know she's praying. That's one of her favorite ways of praying. You can pray in your second language. You can pray in unknown languages like it talks about in the Acts and other places. You can pray standing up. 
You can pray sitting down. You can pray lying down. You can pray eyes closed. You can pray eyes open. Probably more of a case for eyes open prayer in Scripture than other, you know, lifted their eyes to the heavens and all that. Ruth and I like to ride Amtrak. It's like a rolling bed and breakfast. It's not like European trains. They're not quite that good. But we went from D.C. to California some years ago. And somewhere between Chicago and somewhere else coming across the country, a couple got on during the night, and they put us at breakfast with them. You have fascinating conversations. An older couple, he was in his 80s, she in his 60s, been together 30 years. They told us this right out of the chutes. Turns out he had been in the Second World War. I asked him, were you in the war? He said, I was a radio man on a B-17. I said, did you ever stop in North Platte, Nebraska? And some of you have heard me tell the story of North Platte, this town 160-some miles from here where the women in the community met every train for five years, sometimes up to 32 trains a day, and provided fresh food for the servicemen and women who got off the train. That's all that the Army would let them stop for 10 minutes. They served 6 million servicemen over the years in a place called the North Platte Canteen. And um, I said, did you ever go to North Platte? He said, yeah, but not that way. I said, what do you mean? He said, we took off from Wendover Air Force Base in... Um, in January of 43, and got caught in a blizzard over Nebraska, had to set down on a farm airstrip north of North Platte. And the town came up. One of the planes crashed, but 20 crews were picked up. Ten guys in a crew, 218 to 19-year-old guys with 45s on their hips, walk into this train station where they have all this food. He said, are we in the book? Because there's a book about this called Once Upon a Town. I said, no, you're not in the book. He said, we need to be in the book. I said, well, I'll talk to the author next time I see him. I don't know. But we kept talking, and and I said, how many, how many missions did you take? He said, eight. He said, we crashed on our first mission in February of 1943. We crashed in the English Channel. The Royal Air Force saved us all. We were within range of German guns because it was prior to D-Day. On our eighth mission, we got shot down over Czechoslovakia, and I spent the next 21 months in Stalag 18, almost starved to death. By the end of the war, we were being guarded by 15-year-olds. He said, I'll never forget the day that I heard tanks rolling up on the far side of the river, and it was George Patton's 4th Army rolling up in Sherman tanks, and the young, the young German soldier handed me his submachine gun and walked into the woods. His wife said, I've never heard some of these stories, Bill. And he said, you never asked me. <laughs> they said, could we have lunch with you? I said, sure. We had lunch. He said, what do you do? And I told him about what we did in D.C. and working with people in leadership. And I happened to tell him a story of praying with a guy who said, okay, I'll pray with you, but I don't close my eyes. And at the end of our lunch, he looked at me and said, Dick, could we, could we do one of those open-eyed prayers, like here, in the dining car? I said, sure. So there in the crowded Amtrak dining cars that God bless Bill and Sandy. Thank you for these moments on this train. And we, so prayer is when God engages with you in a fresh dimension because prayer engages him on your behalf. And it goes on in the, in the writer of Hebrews. Here's the big picture and we're done. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race. This is the race metaphor. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, that's us, set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He wins. That's what that's about. And then Paul, he's going to turn around twice, and the Romans are going to behead him. And when he writes to Timothy, he writes this in 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What do you think heaven is like? What do you, I mean, we say absent from the body, present. What do, you, what do you think it's like? Well, part of what it's like is the next verse. There is in store for me the crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's you. Not just to me, but to you. We all get a crown, whatever that means. Now, Jesus is all about rejoicing. When you read Luke 15, it's the story of the lost boy and the lost coin and the lost sheep. Some of you remember that story. And, and it says there's rejoicing in Luke 15:10. Tell you, it's the same in heaven. There's rejoicing among the angels of God over one sinner whose heart has changed. So when I was seven years old, and not too much of a sinner, I hadn't had too much time, you know, but I gave all I knew of me at age seven to all I could understand of Jesus. And it says the angels cheered. That's what it says, if I can believe it. So cheering angels start your journey. The great cloud of witnesses cheer you along the way on your journey. Your battle cry is, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then you end up in heaven at the end of the day, at the end of the road. There, there are going to be three memorial services this week in this facility. Believers who have gone home, if you will. I don't think you just slide into heaven. I don't think they say, you know, he just got in by the hair and his chinny chin. He came in the side door or there. I don't think so. I think you go, you all go down Main Street. I think you all go in and the band starts to play and the fireworks start going off and the shouts of the saints are cheering you home. It's ticker tape. It's the honking. It's the whole deal because the warrior, that's you. The warrior has come home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy in our lives. Thank you that when we struggle or we fail or we stumble or we wander off the reservation, you come and find us in the person of somebody and you draw us back to yourself. Your spirit tugs at our spirit. Just in this quiet moment, there may be some of us here who say, you know, I know about the battle. I don't know anything about the help in Jesus. But I'd like his help. And I'd like to step into him. I'd like to start that journey today. I'm just going to pray as you might pray in your heart. And in your heart, you just pray this with me. And let's start. Let's start now. Lord Jesus, you know me. Lord Jesus, you know what I've done, where I've come from. I understand that you will forgive me, that you will wash the slate clean and give me a new heart and a new life. And I want that. And I want to start that today. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Make me a new man or a new woman. Help me to walk in your strength every day as I experience this new life. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. I'm going to ask Cam to lead us in that song one more time just because I like it. That's the only reason. And it tells the truth. It's all about truth and understanding that in the end he wins and when he wins, we win. That's how that works. Still got a little fighting to do. But in the end, he wins and we win too. Let's sing it again. Hit it, Cameron. Here we go.
prayed, when I prayed, if you prayed that prayer of commitment, of openness to the Lord, we have some materials for you just to help you on the next step. In that stairwell, in that stairwell at the guest services desk, just slip by on your way out, pick one of these up, and get started, and we'll see you next week. Now for the benediction. May the grace of God, His Holy Spirit, be in you and on you this week as you go, clothed in His power and might, that your feet are shod with the gospel of peace, that wherever you go in this community, light shows up, because that's who He is, and that's who you are. In His grace, we pray that. Our prayer team is coming, and uh, some of you have needs that are things that you've just held close. You say, I, you know, I love the teaching, or I, I appreciated the singing, but I just need someone to pray with. These are people I trust right here. If I had a need, I could go to these people. We encourage you to come and just spend some moments and let them pray with you over the particular thing, whatever it might be. So on your way out the door... Go adopt a family. The service begins.